Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. So uh, the message is called Take Heart. And the reason it's called Take Heart is because Philippians is really a book of encouragement to people who are suffering and going through hard times. People that are going through difficult times are being spoken into by the Apostle Paul. And he's showing them that it's possible to maintain joy in your life even when you suffer. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I have a big thought that I want to share with you. This is the overall thought of the book and it's the thought for today and also next week's message because I'm only going to get through about half of the chapter today. But here's our big thought for the day. As we partner with others to know Jesus and make Him known, He'll give us great joy in spite of suffering. How many of you need a little bit of that in your life, right? So as we partner with others, I want you to notice that, as we partner with others, because the book of Philippians is a book about partnering with people, and I'm going to show you that today. As we partner with others to know Jesus and make Him known, He'll give us great joy in spite of any suffering we might be going through. And some of you right now, you're going through some suffering, and you're experiencing some real pain in your life, and I want you to know that there is joy in the pain Not just on the other side of the pain, not just after you pass through it, but right in the midst of it, God wants to give you joy. You know, it's possible in the Christian life to shed a tear and yet have a great sense of joy internally. Because you know the ultimate story, you know the ultimate end, you know that right now in your life, wherever you're sitting, wherever you're standing, whatever you're going through, it's not the end yet. The end is still to come, there are things still to be taken care of, God is still going to work on your behalf. Now, before I get into this particular letter, I want to give you some background because I think it's important that you and I understand context. Now, I'm going to get a little theological. Is that okay with you? Anybody out there? You got to help me out. I'm a two-way preacher. Do you know what two-way preachers are? I'm going to talk to you. You got to talk back. Okay, so just every once in a while, give me a "Mm mm-hmm, amen, good word, all right? Just a little, well, yeah. Well, if you got a white hanky, get it out. I'm just kidding. Unless you really want to. I won't stop you. But uh, it's important when we look at the Bible that we understand context. And what I mean by context is it's important when we read the Bible that we know what was going on back then. We know who the author is. We know why the author wrote the particular part of the scripture that they wrote. We understand the audience, the original audience that that author was writing to. We understand some of the cultural difficulties, cultural struggles, cultural challenges that the people who lived at that time were living under, and that we don't read the Bible just to get kind of promise verses. Many Christians approach the Bible, you know, it's kind of like Russian roulette, right? They approach the Bible with what we call Bible roulette. You know, they kind of, and I understand some of it's just because we don't know any better, we haven't been taught. We kind of approach the Bible like, you know... Jesus, show me what you want to say to me. You know, Judas went and hung himself. Ooh, I don't like that one. Uh, Go and do likewise. No, no, wait, whoa, whoa. 
You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we approach the Bible like it's this little book that we can just pick stuff out of, and, and, and that's not a proper approach to the Scripture. Did you know the Bible is 66 books? 66 books written over 15 to 1,600 years of time by more than 40 authors on three continents, and yet there is continuity, and there is a thread of truth that runs through all of it. Theologians call it the scarlet thread of redemption. It's all tied together. There's a unity to it, and that unity can only be explained by the divine breath of God. God is making sure that all of it ties together and ultimately leads to the same theme. The whole of the Scripture, Old and New Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, tell the story of God redeeming humanity. And it, it's beautiful because we see the beginning of the human story in Genesis, and we see the end of the human story on, in this particular type of age in the Revelation. And everywhere in between is pointing to one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. He's the Word, the Word, the Bible. He's the Scripture made flesh, made embodied, brought into this planet, brought into this planet as a man. And so when we approach the Scripture, when we understand that, we can, when we understand the context, we can get the original intent. It'd be the same as, you know, picking up a letter of a family member that lived two centuries ago and reading a, maybe a love letter from one person to another and not understanding the people, what they were facing, what was going on. You would get some of the sense of love and you'd be aware of the love, but you wouldn't get the, the idea as to what kind of struggles they might have been facing or the things that kept them apart and why they're writing the letter. You'd get none of the context. It's so important that we understand context when we read the Scripture. So I'm going to give you some of the background to the book of Philippians, and there's a couple of theological ideas I want to share with you. The first is a word uh, we call hermeneutics. You ever heard of that word? Hermeneutics means the proper interpretation of Scripture. So when we look at hermeneutics, there's a number of principles that we use in hermeneutics to, to be able to understand what the Bible is saying. One of those principles, again, is context. What is going on here? Who wrote this? Who did they write it to? What was the time? What were the circumstances? And that's what I'm going to give you here. Uh, the other word I want to share with you is exegesis and eisegesis. And not, not Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, -S, not Jesus, a different spelling. We're not talking about the person of Jesus, but exegesis means to, to ex exegete the scripture, means to pull out of it the original intent. To eisegete it means to read into the Scripture our own culture and our own background. And here's the problem we have. Most of us, when we read the Bible, we read it and we eisegete it. We read it and we eisegete it. And so what that means is that we read into the Bible American culture, our background, where we live, what's going on culturally, and that's one of the reasons that we misunderstand it so often is because we're laying our own ideas culturally over the Bible. But to exegete the Scripture is to approach it properly. We go into it with the knowledge that we have of what was going on in the ancient world and the people that lived and the, the people who received these, these letters and these writings, and we, we try to understand what was going on there and what did the author intend, and then we do application. An application is when we take these eternal truths that are contained within Scripture that apply in every time and every culture and every, every place, and we 
we're able to see what the unchanging eternal principles are and take them and apply them to our life. And so when we preach up here, our desire is to give you a glimpse, like we time travel. I want to give you a glimpse into what that culture was facing, what was going on, who Paul was writing to, but then I want to show you how that applies to your life and make it alive, make it real, okay? So that's what I'm going to try to do as I lay the foundation to the book of Philippians today. So here's the first thing you need to know. Philippi was a city in what we now call Greece. It was in a part of Greece known as Macedonia. And Philippi was the first church ever founded in what we would call Europe. It was the first European church. Paul the Apostle started the church in Philippi in A.D. 50. So to give you a little bit of an idea, that's about 20 years or less than from when Jesus lived, died, was buried, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of God. So less than 20 years after Jesus Paul started a church in a Macedonian colony in Greece called the Church of Philippi. And here's what's cool. He started this church with a women's prayer meeting and a man who ran a local jail. Isn't that a, that, that's a great way to start a church. A women's prayer group and a jailer started that church, okay? And the women's prayer group and the jailer's household all came to faith in Jesus Christ. They were all born again. They, they came to Christ through Paul's ministry, a church was started, and now Paul is writing this church, and it's about 10 to 12 years after Paul had started the church, and so it's around A.D. 60 to A.D. 62. And here's what was going on with Paul. Paul was in jail. He spent a lot of time in jail. When you read the book of Acts, you see over and over again, he gets arrested. Well, this is probably his third arrest. And during this time, he's in Rome, and he's been arrested. He's kind of under house arrest. They've put him in a particular place. He's living under house arrest, and there are Roman soldiers watching him. And while he's under house arrest, he redeems his time, and he begins to write letters. And he writes letters to all these churches he's been a part of founding. So he writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, and he writes a letter to the church in Colossae, and he writes a letter to the church in Philippi, and he writes a letter to a guy named Philemon to talk to him about a guy named Onesimus, okay? And all of those letters are included in the New Testament, all right? So you still with me? So he writes all these letters while he's in prison, and, uh, and he's under house arrest, and he's talking to the prison guards, and we see later in the book of Philippi that these prison guards came to faith. They were born again. They were saved. They came to faith because Paul preached to them. And, and so then Christians in that area were living under a, a time of nationalistic persecution. Let me explain what I mean. Philippi was home to many retired soldiers. So there were all these soldiers in the Roman army, and they would retire in Philippi. And so Philippi was the ultimate city for patriotism, Roman patriotism and nationalism. And Christians there were experiencing persecution because they worshiped Jesus. Why did they experience persecution in the ancient world? Not because um, the Roman Empire was against Christianity, just because it was a, a, another religion. Because did you know that the Roman Empire had freedom of religion? You could worship any god you wanted to in Rome. You could worship a hundred gods. You could worship a million gods. Nobody cared. Here was the problem. Christians said that Jesus was Lord, and Romans said that Caesar was Lord. So in that time, Christianity was seen as undermining the state. It refused to pledge allegiance to Caesar as the God-man. See, he was seen as a God-king. 
And so Christians at that time, you know, they would, do, they, they would be good citizens. They served well. Even Christians served in the military. But when they were brought to the point of having to say, Caesar is Lord, they refused to do it. And so what happened? The Roman Empire saw them as a threat to the continuity and the unity of the state, and they began to kill them. And we know that eventually Nero, um, the, the Caesar Nero, took and, and burned Rome. He completely burned Rome, and then he blamed it on the Christians so that they could be killed, they could be crucified, and they were crucified by the thousands because he falsely accused them of burning Rome. So that is the cultural context, and Paul's writing them because he wants to encourage people who are suffering. They're experiencing suffering, and, and Paul knew that many of these new followers of Jesus had a faulty idea, and here's their faulty idea. They believed that suffering and hardship were evidence of sin or God's displeasure. Let me stop here. That's the religion some of us have bought into. Think about it. Some of you in this room have this idea in your mind that if I read my Bible, and I pray, and I go to church, and I give my tithe, and I live good, and I live right, then my life will be blessed, and everything will go good, and if I suffer any kind of difficulty, or any kind of pain, or if things go wrong in my life, it must be because I'm doing something wrong, or God is angry with me. It's a common fault we see in the Scripture. Think of Job. If you, if you know the story of the Bible, there's a guy named Job, and Job loses everything, and he's suffering greatly. His children die. His workers die. He loses all of his business. And he's suffering. And he's, he's got sores all over his body. And all of these men come to visit him to try to comfort him. And they start out really good. For seven days, they sit with him on the ground and weep with him and mourn with him. And they never say a word. They're mourning and grieving well with their friend. But at the end of that seven days, they start to decide that they need to set Job right. They, they need to assess his life. And they begin to say to Job, you know, Job, here's the problem. You must have been in sin. You must have been doing something wrong because your life is going through difficulty. And we know that people only go through difficulty when they do the wrong thing. Right? Whoa, I'm getting somebody excited. Come on. Thank you, sister. There you go. I'm touching, touching a chord somewhere, right? So what, what, what we see there in, in the scriptures that these Christians are in Philippi and they're, they're getting pushback. They're getting pushback. They're experiencing pain and they are starting to think maybe something's wrong. And, and so Paul knew that seeing him in prison would deeply discourage them because they reasoned in their mind that a man of God who was holy and doing God's work shouldn't suffer. So Paul writes them to show them that they could suffer. And still have joy, <laughs> and still have joy and confidence in God. I got her excited. What, this one's really got you, huh? All right, thank you. Thank you for your encouragement. So he, he also goes on to show them that suffering, listen to this one, suffering is inevitable. And joy is possible when we stay focused on Jesus and following him. Right? And so that's what the whole purpose of the letter is. So what I want to do is take you into just two key ideas today because of time. I'm going to share two key ideas with you from Philippians on what happens when we suffer well and we experience joy. And here's the first one. God will complete what he begins. 
That's really important. God will complete what He begins. Look at Philippians 1, 6 with me. It's up here, and I'd like you to read it out loud with me, if you would. Those of you who have got a good, strong voice, let's read Philippians 1, 6. Look what it says. And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Wow. Let's read it one more time. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you some questions about God's good work in your life. First of all, has God begun a good work in your life? Do you know him? Have you begun to follow him? Can you look in your life and think of the activity of God. Can you put your finger on some evidences of His grace in your life? Can you think of things He's done for you that show you that He knows you, He knows where you live, He knows your circumstances, and He loves you? Do you know that God is real? Have you made Jesus your own Savior and Lord? Now, I know he makes himself that, but you know what I'm saying. Have you said, I will follow you? You know, Jesus is walking along the shore of Galilee, and he sees a couple of different people. He sees James and John, and they're fixing their father's nets to his fishing boat. And he sees Peter and, and Andrew, and he's walking along, and he calls them. He says, come and follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And the Scripture says they left their nets, and they followed him. So we know that they came to a point where they heard the voice and they followed him. And the question I have for you is, have you heard his voice, and have you begun to follow him? And can you say, I know the good work of God in my life? Do you know him? Do you know him? Is Jesus Christ a real person to you? Now, I'm not talking about a religion. I'm not talking about church. I'm not just talking about attending church. I'm saying, is God a real person to you? Is he knowable to you? It's really important that you answer that question. Otherwise, you're just getting religion. And God has more for you than just religion. Religion is okay if it leads you to the relationship of knowing Him. But if you find everything just in your religion and it doesn't lead you to knowing God, there's a problem there. Okay, secondly, do you trust that He will bring His work to completion in your life? This is astounding. The statement is astounding. Paul says, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Every good thing that God has begun in you will be brought to completion in the future. Some things will be completed here in this age now, but others will only be made complete and right in the last day. Some things you will see God work on your behalf and right now while you live, before you breathe your last breath on this side of eternity, you will see God bring fruition. You'll see God bring completion to dreams, to hopes, to things he showed you. You'll see it. I'm seeing it in my own life. Family members who I was concerned about that didn't know Jesus, I'm seeing some of them come to the knowledge of the Lord. I went to church with my sister and her husband last Sunday. That was an answer to years and years of prayer. And I sat and we worshiped Jesus together. And I was like, God, you're so good. That was a a, a promise, a sense I had in my heart that this is going to happen. 
The Lord's going to do this thing. But there are other things. There are some things that we will never see complete until the day of Jesus Christ. And that's where we have to trust. You know, I think of my own walk with the Lord. I think of the people that I've lost along the way. I think of people that I love, people that I've seen grow in God and then kind of go off for a bit. See, so dreams in my own heart. You know, you ever had dreams or hopes, something that you felt like God showed that to me and I, I thought for sure it was going to happen and it, it seemed like it died. It seemed like something aborted it. It never came to be what it was supposed to be and you find yourself asking questions, right? You find yourself saying, what in the world happened? Can you trust that that thing is going to be completed at the day of Jesus Christ? Because these people were experiencing pushback. They were experiencing persecution. The honeymoon was over. You'll remember, those of you who you know, had a, a point in your life where you really began to follow Christ, you, you remember the season where it seemed like you didn't even have to pray it, all you had to do was think it, and it happened? And it seemed like, wow, God was just working everywhere. Everywhere you looked, you saw the evidences of God's grace, and you, you go like that for a while, and you're experiencing the goodness and the kindness of God, and it seems like every time you turn around, there's evidences that He's at work in your life, and then you come to this wall. And let me just tell you, if you're new in your faith, and that's where you're at, you're going to hit a wall. I guarantee it. This isn't, I'm not speaking doubt over you. I'm telling you the reality. You're going to hit a wall. And it's really important that you hit that wall. And it's really important that your faith be tested in that. That you find out the genuineness of what you really believe. That you experience pushback. Because you can't build muscles without resistance. And you can't build spiritual muscles without resistance. You're going to hit times of struggle. You're going to hit times of suffering. You're going to hit times of pain. And ultimately God's going to work something good in you through it. But it's going to happen. And that's what was happening here. And so Paul is saying, look, can you trust God to complete his work at the day of Jesus Christ? Now, what's the day of Jesus Christ? In the New Testament, it's also called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is that time of final judgment and that time of reward. There's going to come a time when all of us are going to stand before God at the end of the age and all accounts are going to be open, and everything's going to be laid open. Everything that's hidden is going to be brought into the light. Everything in the darkness is going to be exposed. Excuse me while I spit. And for the believer, for the follower of Jesus, there's going to be reward, and all that sin and all that darkness is going to be covered by the blood of the Lamb, Right? And, and everybody, it, we're, we're going to see things as they really are. And there are going to be some things, the loss of a loved one that you can't understand, things that have deeply pained you, right? Lost relationships, broken marriages, right? Um, business partnerships that failed, things where injustices happened and you were wrongly accused, 
Maybe you've done jail time for something that you didn't feel was fair. Whatever it may be, wherever injustice, wherever lies, wherever deception seemed to win the day, wherever evil seemed to win and darkness seemed to win, and we live in a time where on the 24-hour, seven-day-a-week news cycles, we continually see it looks like darkness is winning. It looks like evil is winning the day. We look around our planet, and sometimes I'm telling you, it gets discouraging, and you wonder, is there a God in the midst of all this? And the answer is, yes, there is. And one day, he's going to take every account and make it right. And this is the confidence that we have as followers of Jesus. Because I'm going to tell you something. If you're looking for justice in this world, you're going to be heartbroken. We live in a twisted, distorted world. Injustice often wins the day. Sometimes we get glimpses of justice. Sometimes right seems to win. But other times, it looks like darkness is winning the day. And we have to have confidence as we work for truth, we have to have confidence that the rest of the story hasn't been told and there's a day, it's called the day of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ, the great judge and the great defense lawyer is going to stand up before all of creation, lay out the books and every crooked way is going to be made straight, every dark place is going to be lit up with light and he is going to take what's broken and he's going to restore it. We have to trust that. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis from The Great Divorce. I want you to just kind of wrap your head around this quote. He says, that is what mortals misunderstand. They say of temporary suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. See, Are you you catching what that's saying? This is what Lewis is saying. And I believe this is confirmed throughout Scripture. Lewis is saying that even what looks evil and bad, what was the, listen, this this one will really blow you away. If you're a follower of Jesus, even your sinful failures can be redeemed. Something beautiful can be made out of your mess. He can make your mess a message. He can make your darkness light. Yeah. And I've experienced it too. Many of you in this room have experienced that. You know that He can do that. And there's going to be a day when we'll look at all the pain that's gone on on this planet, even the really wicked stuff, and we'll be able to say, I don't know how He did it, but God brought beauty from those ashes. He gave me a garment of praise for that spirit of heaviness. And he took that shattered life and made it sing. And only he can do that. I don't know how, but he can do it. And that takes me to only my second point. And this is where I'm going to finish. And that is that God's plans, this is really important, God's plans happen in partnership with others. This is really important. One of the key themes of Philippians is the fact that you have to do this thing with others. Look, if you're looking for a personal Jesus is my guru kind of relationship, I'm going to live independently. Let me just say this. Even Han Solo had Chewbacca. Okay? You see, see, this life is not meant 
to be traversed alone. And one of the reasons that church is important, one of the reasons that it's not just Jesus and me and my own personal salvation, is because we have to do this thing called walking with Jesus Christ in this world in partnership with other people going the same direction that we are. Amen. And that means we do it with all the messiness. We do it with the brokenness. Let let me just say something to you right now. If you're new in our church, I love watching new people come into our church. They get really rocked here. They get their lives rocked. They love the worship. They start, they really love my preaching or other people's preaching. They're just like, I love the word and I love the worship and everybody here is so nice and I just, this place is wonderful. And I just smile and nod my head and I think, and I just want to say, give it time. Give it time. Just give it time. Because your bubbles are going to get popped. Because if you just look around this room, and I'm looking around this room, I'm going to tell you what. There's a lot of messy lives in here. I'm talking about myself, too. We're messy. Sin is still messing us up. Right? And there's a lot of complexity here. These are not just, you know, I'm a Christian, life's so good, look at my Instagram, (laughs) right? And and that false persona that's telling the world that I've got life by the tail and I'm in control. We know better. Look, if you're putting that up on, on Instagram and Facebook, I just want to tell you, I know better. I know better. You're a mess just like I am. Right? So what happens in community is you live with people that are broken, and you work it out. You get offended with each other. You have arguments. That person does something. I hear people say this, I'm not going to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. I well, come and join us. You're a hypocrite too. Come on. Do you always live consistently with what you say you believe? Wait till the pressure comes on. You'll break. You'll blow it. See, we, we, it's funny, you know, Jesus said, judge not lest we be judged. We love to throw that one out there when it's a pet area in our life, right? But then think about it. Think about how many of us judge and assess people right upon first sight. I see it happen around here. People walk in the door and you can just, you can kind of see, you know, just kind of, he, he really thinks he's something. I experience it. You know, sometimes I look out at people when they're watching me speak, especially if they're new, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see it. They're, they're like, I wonder if this guy's real. I wonder if he's a deceiver. I wonder if he wants my money. Dominic set me up perfectly, right? Man, I want a boat. I'm kidding. I don't want a boat. But you see what I'm saying? People come in, and we do that with each other. That's why we need this. Because how will I ever learn to love as Jesus loved unless it's hard? If you don't offend me and mess with me and I don't have to work through it, my love is just as cheap as the rest of the love out there. Committed love, loyal love means that you fight and you work through stuff. But it's in that partnership we grow. It's in that partnership that we become like Jesus. I just want to read a a text of Scripture to you, and I want you to notice some. As we get ready to read this in in Philippians 1, 
I want you to notice the number of times Paul talks about his interaction with the people. And he talks about how he prays for them and how he loves them and how they love him and they partner with him. I want you to notice the number of times. Look at this, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy. So he's telling them, I pray for you all. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a work, good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Verse 14. And most of all, brothers... Most, excuse me, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's believing that somehow because they're praying for him, he's going to get out of jail. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now quickly, from that, from that text of Scripture, I just want you to see how much we partner with each other. Paul says here, we're called to partner in the gospel. So all of us in this room, we're called to partner in letting our world know there's good news about Jesus, and Jesus is the one who came to rescue humanity from the power of sin and death and bring us back to God. That, that's, our, that's our message. We're in partnership in the grace of God. How many of you in this room recognize that without the grace of God, you're a mess? It should be all of you that call yourself followers of Jesus. I recognize something about me. I would be dead or in prison without the grace of God, right? I recognize something about my life. When I was an enemy, when I was a sinner, when I didn't deserve it, when I was unlovable, Jesus died for me. And the rest of us are in partnership in that. That's why we give each other grace, because we know what he's done in us. That's why it's so, one of the biggest hypocrisies in the church is that one of us could look down on another when we know our own story and we know how desperate we were apart from the goodness of God. And then we are called to partner in prayer and speaking boldly for Jesus. And we're called to partner in the progress and joy of each other's faith. I, I want to tell you, one of the greatest joys of my life as a pastor is when I look out and I watch people and I have conversations with people that I know and I watch how they've grown. I, I watch their progression. I know people in this congregation that were, you know, I know people in this congregation that were meth addicts not long ago and have been clean for a while now and are growing in their faith in Jesus and are loving God and now they're starting to impact others positively. And I'm like, come on, that's a story. And they couldn't get that help anywhere else, but they got it in Jesus Christ. And I know people on the other side, I know people who grew up in the church and their biggest sickness, their greatest sin was self-righteousness. 
They'd come to buy the idea that they were really good people, and God had to open their hearts and open their eyes to show them their own desperate need of the good news, and I'm watching them progress and become gracious, merciful, patient, and kind people who used to be really harsh and judgmental. Now, I'm telling you what, when you get to see that happen in people's lives, you can shout it from the rooftops. That's joy. That's pleasure. When the self-righteous become gracious. And we get to partner in standing firm and striving together in our faith. I don't know about you, but when I see people make it, when I see people keep going, when I see people not give up, I was just talking to some people at the end of the last service. They have been through a series of terrible events in their life. One thing after another. Hitting their children, hitting their finances, identity theft and, and diseases and car accidents. And it's all happened in the course of like a year, year and a half time. Boom, 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 boom. And you just go, wow, how can people endure that? And I know other people in this church that have been through a series of events that just make you go, how do they make it? But I'm telling you something, when I see them clinging to Jesus and their insides, they're, they're staying soft, they're hurting. At times they're angry, but they're holding on to Jesus Christ and something's being worked inside of them. Something beautiful, something kind, something just, something lovely is coming out of them. It's like a flower being crushed. When that flower gets crushed, that's when you smell the fragrance. When you take that grape and you crush it, it can become wine. I'm telling you, sometimes in life, when you get crushed, when you get broken and you keep going and you hold on to him and in the work of Christ, the nature of Christ gets worked in you, it's beautiful and it encourages me and it makes me go, I can do it. I can make it. I can go on. That's what Philippians is about. Philippians is Paul sitting in prison saying, I got joy. Don't you think that because I got chains on me, the gospel stops? Don't you think that the work of God stops? Don't you think that somehow this is the end? It's not the end. And then he goes on later in the second, third chapter, he says, even if I die, it's okay. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, I'd rather die so I can be with Jesus. But you know what? I'm going to stick around so I can help you. That's what he says. You talk about perspective. So I'm telling you, take heart. Your losses will be redeemed. Your brokenness can be made beautiful. God can do something with your life. And you might be sitting here today and say, you don't know. I have messed my life up. I have made so many bad decisions, and I've messed my life up. Can God do something with me? And I would say, absolutely. You're right where you need to be. All of the pretense, all the pretending, you know, maybe you've, you'd say, I've been exposed. My deceptive lying nature has been exposed. People know me as I really am now and I'm ashamed, I would say to you, praise the Lord. Now you can get over yourself and learn about life. Amen.